fragility, the latest neologism. Greg Goddard calls it anti-racism that ignores racism. Hi, I'm Kent Garrett. Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast number four. There were 18 of us. We were in the Harvard College class of 1963, and we are now pushing 80 years of age. This episode is about white fragility. With me are three of my classmates. We have Fred Easter, Jerry Secundi, and John Woodford. And our guest is Marxist-Leninist writer and blogger Greg Goddles. Welcome to the uh, podcast, and how are you? Where are you calling from? Well, thank you for having me. I'm calling from Pittsburgh. Um, I've lived here since I came here for school in 1969. Well, so you've had a pretty long writing career. Tell us a little about that. Well, actually, I started writing, uh, you know, when I I was still working. I ret- I'm retired now. I was in the, in the wine business for 20, 30 years. And uh, I wrote for left-wing publications during that period. But when I retired, I became a much more uh, frequent Mm -hmm. writer. So I write uh, a blog, ZZ's blog. Uh, The the take is essentially Marxist, uh, Marxist Marxist-Leninist. I come out of the political movement, the communist political movement, socialist movement. Uh, which I got involved in in, I guess, early 70s when I was in graduate school. Um, and uh, I just uh, just happy that you found my blog, and uh, I hope you enjoyed right, what I wrote. I did, we did. Well, tell me, I mean, what is it? We're in this land of uh, era, I guess, of white fragility. Tell us what you think about that. Well, I think the article speaks for itself. I was kind of uh, ticked off. I mean, because I think it's a major distraction to go into these uh, uh, what what I would call uh, microaggressive uh, uh, areas when we have macroaggressions against black people in this country that go unaddressed. Uh, my my daughter was working on a master's degree in uh, clinical psychology, and of course a good father. I was helping with some of her papers. And she said to me one day, she said, well, there's a lecturer that's going to be in town. Uh, He's doing something on microaggressions. And I said, well, what's that? And she says, well, you know, it's kind of the etiquette and people, people become uncomfortable. People become, uh," I said, well, that's fine and good. But what about macroaggressions? What about the violence that's done to people in this society? What, what about that? I mean, why are we concerned about, not that we shouldn't be concerned or we shouldn't be sensitive to it, but why is that our focus? What I see essentially in the last uh, few, well, many years, decade maybe, uh, kind of move in that direction, both academically and now in terms of practice, towards uh, misreading racism, misreading its roots, uh, and ignoring the key question, which is equality. I'm reminded of what uh, Nina Simone sang with the Mississippi Goddamn, where she said, "Don't give, uh, you don't have to live next to me, just give me my equality, which I think captures that it's it's not a matter of uh, how you how you feel about me it's about what i have and what i can do it's it's a return to the the notion that seems to be forgotten in anti-racist struggles today and that is you know bringing black people into the economic arena uh, so that they're 
fighting with an even uh, even chance. But I mean, do you feel that maybe the uh, changing of minds and that whole etiquette and does that is that a prerequisite? Should that come first? No, no. See, that that's that's the essential difference I would have with someone like Robin mm-hmm. D'Angelo uh, on a philosophical level. I think you have to change people's material conditions before you change attitudes. Um, that that really makes a difference in terms of uh, of uh, of how we look at people. And uh, the death of affirmative action in this country, which I would I would say occurred. I don't know if I had to give it a year, probably in the 70s, late 70s, or early 80s, uh, was an incredible loss. Uh, I mean, that, that really set back the anti-racist movement enormously. And I, I think that a lot of that lies at the feet of the Democratic Party, which retreated from it. But, you know, it seems to me that we have really changed the socioeconomic level of large numbers, a tremendous percentage of black people. But the country seems to want to hold on to the myth that the black people are the poor and uneducated and the white people are the middle class and educated. Um, And I think that's an oversimplification. I mean, it is part of sort of blaming the victim. If you can keep them, um, keep thinking about them in the same way, then it's okay to keep treating them in the same way. Yeah, I think uh, there's no question that the old the old image. If you go back to um, Pittsburgh, for example, where I live, you back go back to uh, the late '70s. Uh, black people in uh, this area had made tremendous progress. Uh, the steel industry had been opened up uh, so that there were jobs. Uh, there was a, uh, a burgeoning middle class. There really had never been a large black middle class in this uh, city. But there was a definite improvement in where people were. And, of course, that was a result to just as much of the 60s and the, uh, that sort of new reconstruction of that period. But then comes the industrialization, and uh, it was devastating in the city. It is devastating to black people more than anyone else. Everybody got hammered, but black people got hammered the most. And uh, I think that's true throughout the Midwest. So my experience is more with the Midwest. And I think that's what you really saw. I don't see, I don't see, to me, attitudes follow uh, material conditions. We draw our conclusions about people from what Mm -hmm. we see. And if people are perceived because of their economic situation as being lesser in some way or another, more prone to violence, what have you, that, that grows out of that, uh, that, Mm -hmm. that image. There's definitely a much larger black, middle, upper middle class than there was. In fact, in some ways, uh, that's part of the problem. Uh, I don't think that, I think some folks have lost touch with uh, with the black community. I live, uh, where I live now, when I came, when I moved here was the one of four integrated communities in Pittsburgh. Now all four or three of those four have been gentrified and there's really no integrated community in this city. And the adjoining community to the north of us is essentially 99.9% black, and its level of income uh, is dramatically below. Mm-hmm. Is that Duquesne? It's very racist. Is that Duquesne? Pardon me. No, no. This is. Uh, I live in North Point Breeze, and then north of us is Homewood, which is a uh, since the 60s a historically black mm-hmm. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. John, where do you come down? I, I come down. Uh, 
I come down uh, right where Greg is. Uh, probably my politics are like Greg's also. The, uh, I can remember being on a train in the uh, Soviet Union in the late 70s, early 80s, when someone, the, the person on the train, the, the woman serving the food, uh, a Russian said, uh, why are you serving those, uh, the, why are you serving those black visitors before you serve us, we're Russians, you should be serving us first. I mean, we were sitting where they should have served us properly, you know, first anyway. And she said, uh, well, maybe I would like to, but you know, with the law, if I do that, I'm gonna get into a lot of trouble. I, and the thing is, yeah, I don't care what's in their minds and hearts first. It's a matter of what laws, what can people do? What laws do they have to obey? What can they get away with? And then I'll wonder, I'll, I'll worry about the minds and hearts later on. The same thing occurred with the desegregation of schools. Um, you know, who cares what they're thinking that you're going to come into the schools? First of all, you're not going to be able to segregate the schools. What happens in your mind and heart down the line, uh, we hope that they are improved and your ignorance is overcome and your bigotry. But the first thing is, is to have the right kind of laws and enforcement of uh, equality and justice. So, so that's why I agree. When I was listening to Krista Tippett and the other person on the radio uh, at night, because I often listen, it was around 1 or 2 a.m. and I was, I had, I had awakened, so I turned on the radio and listened. I was burned up so much I couldn't go to sleep again for another hour listening to what I felt was just a, a lot of psychobabble pap, you know, pouring out of them and uh, with this white fragility and, uh, you know, for one week it's going to be white supremacy, next week it's white fragility and they equate those things and it's, you know, white this, white that, and the black thing is supposed to be black people full of pain and suffering and uh, white people fragile. You know, this um, fetishization of of uh, racial concepts and uh, so-called attributes is what I see occurring. And it, it plays into the hands of, of marketeers, uh, corporate symbolic gestures. So we're gonna put such and such on our uniforms or we're going to countenance now people can bow or we say systemic whenever we say racism now. It's, it's all ritualistic and, and uh, empty behavior and it doesn't get to the rights of people to have to organize, to have an adequate income, uh, solid things that can be fought for. These are put on the back burner. There's no agenda that makes any sense. They, it's all this cultural stuff. So I'll shut up after that, but that's where I stand. How about you, Jerry? Where are you at? Where are you at? Well, let me go back to what Fred said at the beginning, which is a mythology that uh, all blacks are poor and uh, live in rural areas or in urban ghettos. Uh, when you look at the welfare roles, uh, the majority are white, not black. Uh, that's who's really on welfare. And we have been successful in creating a black upper class and a solid black middle class. But there's also no question that we have a very large black lower class uh, or poor class, for lack of a better word. 
The problem is, how do we get to those folks? I mean, the people, Greg, you're talking to right now, we're told from a fairly young age, education was the way out of the ghetto. Now, we all grew up poor, and my parents told me very simply, I had a choice. I could either get an education or I could be a red cap in Union Station, which was one of the highest things that a Black person at that point in time could aspire to. So there's also a lot of what I would call uh, economic segregation, uh, even amongst the Black community. You know, the middle class and upper class Blacks are don't particularly relate to those poor Blacks and don't really want to be around them to a very large extent. Uh, it's the exception that will want to work with them. My mother was a, uh, a community organizer and a social worker, and so she was working with the poor in Washington, D.C. Uh, for her entire life. But that was more unusual. So how do we get to those people that have not made it? How do we tell them that education really is the key to getting out? Uh, if it's not academic education, it's vocational education in terms of being a plumber or electrician, et cetera. But it's a whole generation that is stuck right now. And how do we get to them? And going back to the, one of the quotes you said at the beginning, Greg, which is, yeah, I don't have to live next to you. I just want to be equal. The problem is we were never equal. We didn't live next to them and we were never equal. We never had the same opportunities. We never had the same economic uh, status, if you like. So that's kind of where I'm at. And one last thing, and you were talking about the Communist Party. Back in the 30s and 40s, the only party that was for integration was the Communist Party, not the Democrats, not the Republicans. And so many people within the Black community that joined the Communist Party were really pillared, certainly by Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s. But there was a reason they joined. They were welcomed there, uh, not elsewhere. So that's kind of where mm -hmm. I'm at again. And so, Greg, what, how weird is the Marxist, what is the Marxist-Leninist position at this, or the Communist Party position at this point in this country anyway? Well, we don't really have a, a, a solid unified communist movement in this country. Uh, when I was a youngster, there was, and now it's pretty much uh, dissipated right. and like everything else in a U.S. politics, confused. But I think a uh, uh, real important contribution that communism made was it viewed uh, racism as essentially economically grounded, not in a crude way, but in terms of it having a motivation. People were motivated to make racism um, uh, bring it alive and to use it. It had a it had a function, and I think that's the contribution. And I think that's the way I try to look at it. I try to ask myself, how does it function? I think that in the last few decades, I mean, the Obama experience, for example. A lot of the people in the highest echelons of the economy are, are not uncomfortable with allowing black people in the door, uh, but it's still important for them to control the black working class. And an example of that would be the incarceration phenomena. Why were so many people incarcerated? Well, they coincided with deindustrialization, so it makes some sense to make a connection between deindustrialization and the harm it did to the black working class throughout most of this country, the so-called flyover area, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, uh, Chicago, other areas, and connect that with uh, criminalization and uh, and 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 the uh, uh, putting people in prison in a massive way. Um, I remember here when when the mills went down and um, neighborhoods, black neighborhoods were like most working class neighborhoods, um, 
in 10 years, uh, crack and, uh, and no jobs destroy these neighborhoods. It's, a, it's an untold story for most part in the West. Who brought crack to those neighborhoods? Because it wasn't the indigenous Well, I have people. a theory. I, I have a theory, but I, I, I hesitate to say it because I can't back it up. I mean, I just think that given what I know from U.S. history, it wasn't black people. I mean, it was, it was introduced uh, with a purpose. Right. And certainly the way, the way, the more importantly, since I can't prove that, but I can prove this. And is the judicial system treated it differently than it did cocaine use? We all know that. That we know. That's not a speculation. That we know. So, yeah, it, it's a way of controlling a community. But back to some other things we talked about. You, you know, uh, Elizabeth, uh, not Elizabeth, um, Zorsky, what's her name? Uh, she wrote the great book on affirmative action. Um, Zorsky passed away. But she made the point that, that something like 70 or 80% of all jobs are gotten through contacts. So what would that mean to a black community that didn't have those contacts? When I was a youngster, I started working when I was 13. My neighbor came over and said, you want to help me build my basement, dig a basement? Somebody else had a job at a department store when I was 14, 15. Would you be interested? And so on and so forth. Every summer in college, I worked. I did construction. I did this. But all through contacts. For, for, the, for a person who didn't have those contacts, you didn't get those jobs. So that's one aspect of the economic fundaments of racism in this country. Another aspect of uh, what you're talking about is the fact that the black community, the Hispanic, the percentage of people who are working class in those communities is higher than in the uh, Euro-American Euro or white community. So when they talk about business and business stuff being a way out, really, there aren't that many black people in either small business or big business proportionately. Much. So you have to have, if you want to look where the people are and where they're going to have to fight from, it's going to be from jobs that are better when they have unions and other kinds of things to protect them and also affirmative action. They wiped out affirmative action, like the backing case. Uh, was really a tremendous defeat when they permitted them to, with the Supreme Court, you know, affirmative action and every kind of ameliorative program is expensive. Just like having a good schools in the poor communities, it's expensive. And once people who were controlled with the money bags decided that they didn't want to expend in that way, they, have, they came up with a rationale to get rid of affirmative action, I'll call it reverse discrimination. and. Uh, and, and so there's been a backward slide, really. The uh, you know the unemployment, the quality of education. I mean, the Detroit public schools used to be a very fine um, school system. Even it was a majority black school system for quite some time. But they had uh, you know musicians, engineers. Also, they had fine teachers. Now it is pretty much a cesspool. It's not just Detroit. I mean, our public schools in the poor neighborhoods are just warehousing kids now. And uh, the investments that it would take to overcome this would be considerable. And you can't have it with a military budget. That's one thing I'm always harping on. You can't, there's only so much money. And when it goes to the military, who's, gonna get, who's getting strangled? Who's getting starved out? Right, right. It's the inner cities, really. 
in, in rural rural areas too. Well, Greg, let me ask you this. I mean, do you think the there's an inevitable commercialization of the movements in the sense that, uh, for example, it happened with the Black Panthers. I mean, they were aligned with a lot of elite movie stars and that sort of thing. And even there's arguments that the BL, the Black Lives Matter movement is now to some extent commercialized in the sense that, you know, it's backed by a lot of wealth and, and uh, rich people, that sort of thing. I mean, but is that an inevitability? the way our country is set up now. No, it's not an inevitability, it's a curse. And and it's it's I think what makes it more insidious today than at the time of the Black Panthers is the enormous growth of foundations, NGOs, uh, these kind of phenomena that have their, really their tentacles into almost every movement. Um, and uh, that's a great concern. I, you know, this, this I don't wanna sound pessimistic. In fact, I'm very optimistic because I think this is a moment where we could really make some great progress. I don't know if you saw the uh, uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll from July 9th through July 12th uh, about, about attitudes, about, uh, uh, I, I think it's, if you haven't seen it, I think you'll agree it's unprecedented in my lifetime. The numbers are startling. 56% uh, of the American people think that American society is racist. That's a quote from the Wall Street Journal NBC poll. Um, of the, the answers for that, of the explanations, the favorite explanation was people of color experience discrimination because it's built into our society, including our policies and institutions. This is the United States, the poll of people in this country. 57% uh, of the people totally support protests and demonstrations that emerged after George Floyd's uh, murder. And this is to me striking. I don't know. I was re reading something recently about uh, in the 60s and the civil rights movement and how folks had to negotiate uh, public relations because they were concerned about losing followings. Do you recall any time in your life where this number of the American people support anti-racism? And yet it's 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 hanging by a thread. I mean, it's being just taken in different directions that are not going to be productive. When you have an economic crisis like this, like in the Great Depression, it's one of the few times you have an opportunity to bring everybody up, and in the course of bringing everybody up, bringing some people up even more. Uh, that normally doesn't happen because of, I think, what uh, John said earlier about uh, people not wanting to open up the purse strings to to fund affirmative action. This is a moment for us. This is a real moment if we had the right leadership that we could really attack uh, this, this legacy of racism. Black people have been a cash cow in this society for centuries. And racism is basically the excuse, the blaming the victim part of the equation. Because I think if you are a serial abuser, you have to prove that the people who you abuse deserve it. Oh, I was going to say then, I'd like to see the Biden um, agenda, the points that they're going to run on, and what it's going to include, not only as far as uh, labor rights and anti-racist legislation, but also on uh, the military budget and also the foreign policy positions of the country. Um, you know, there, there's a group of war hawk, you know, the hawk Democrats, who are, uh, some of them are even more desirous of uh, war 
war games and provocations overseas as Republicans, or they sit right beside them. They take the same positions in terms of, uh, let's say, Venezuela or Syria or other sorts of, they take a, a hawkish position that's, as, to me, as, as ignorant and, and reactionary as a lot of Republicans. So, to me, it's important not to support the, um, the, the imperialistic uh, behavior of one's own country towards other people. And that's what I'd like to see come into the choice of the Democrats also, because Biden has been in that camp, but he's a malleable, he's a malleable person. He's, uh, so it's gonna depend on that group, group behind him. But that group of Democrats at the top, I have uh, not a lot of respect for. You know, the question I would ask is, uh, what really has, what have the Democrats advanced since Johnson? I mean, uh, uh, Johnson's a hard person to make into a hero in many ways if you look at the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. But in terms of accomplishing things, uh, even, I mean, you go back to the Philadelphia plan, Nixon's Philadelphia plan in 1969, the, 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 the best affirmative action program ever, ever enacted in America. It's been downhill since for working people. If you want, if you drive through Pittsburgh, and I'm sure it's true in your cities as well, and you look at construction sites, maybe there's an exception, maybe I missed something, but in Pittsburgh, it's white workers. That's who's that's who's getting the jobs. That's who the plumbers. That's who the, the, the engineers. That's who it's it's all white essentially. How was the entry for people into the middle class or the upper middle class historically? That was the way you got in through these. Trades, and that's you know I'm I'm a labor advocate. That's what the Marxist is, but but that's where we could begin to change this country is right there with those trade unions, those trades. What about Hispanics? That, in, that's there. What about Hispanics and in Pittsburgh? What's the situation with them? It's it's a it's a growing it's a growing piece of the population. Uh, it's a it's vibrant. It's small, relatively small compared to black people. Uh, but it, it, it faces enormous difficulty because of uh, anti-immigrant sentiment and doors being closed uh, to, 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 to uh, immigrants as well. So uh, this is a city that's been gentrified from the industrial era. Now it's IT, it's meds and ads, and uh, so you have a displacement. I mean, we have lost 20,000 black people from the city. They've been pushed into the suburbs, the formerly white suburbs. Uh, low-income suburbs, and in their place is a Google crowd. Uh, uh, so we have a Googleville down the road, which used to be a Nabisco plant, and uh, and so on and so forth. But it's it's really really shifted in that way, and 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 the city fathers wanted to shift in that way. That's where they wanted to go. So it's not a it's not a minority-friendly uh, uh, city. You know, Greg, I, I'm not as pessimistic, I guess, as some of my colleagues. Uh, there's no question that we have a malignant narcissist racist in the White House right now. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic that that will change in November. Uh, and I think with different leadership, uh, I hope that some of the reverses that we've seen over the last three and a half years uh, will go away. And maybe I'm just too optimistic about that. But you do need leadership from the top down. Um, and especially if he picks up a, a black vice president, I think that will absolutely help us is what it amounts to. But it's, it's going to be a long, hard struggle. 
Uh, it's, you know, it's never straight up. It's always up and down, up and down, up and down. As far as I'm concerned, there's always reaction. There's obviously, we got Trump as a reaction to Obama, uh, but hopefully we're going to get somebody as a reaction to Trump at this point in time. And I do think things are improving. Uh, again, I think we've got a solid black middle class. We've got a, a solid upper class of blacks at this point in time. We've come a long way and we have a hell of a long way to go is what it amounts to. But I'm not as pessimistic. I am optimistic, but as a kind of leadership void and uh, without without leadership, you know, the, part of the, the American ethos is this kind of radical democratic thing that we all get together and and, and, and we'll all come up with some common uh, uh, idea and move forward. But if you look at history, if you look at, for example, the civil rights movement, you had to have leaders. You had to have people that stepped up and, and uh, really pushed their vision. And that's what's missing today. Uh, we're in a profound, profound crisis. It's, a, it's an epidemiological crisis. It's, a, it's an economic crisis it's just emerging. Um, it's a political crisis. Uh, I have to say, I don't, I'm, I'm not uh, optimistic about the election. I, I think Biden will win, but I don't see the Democrats having the spine to really do much. Um, I see Trump really as a kind of culmination of a long deterioration of the two-party system. It's taken us here, and what we've got is ugly. But I, I don't see anything brighter down the road if the Democrats are elected. Um, so, I mean, that and this, I mean, the most optimistic thing I have is on race because I, I think that people are in the streets and, and uh, the sentiment out there is remarkable, but I'm afraid we'll uh, blow it. I'm afraid we'll blow it. I'm afraid we'll, uh, we'll, we'll uh, let this opportunity get away from us. So I think people will, as, as, as the pain sinks in, people will look at other options. Uh, I, I offer a different option. I'm looking at a different option. I'm proposing a different option. Uh, it certainly isn't a groundswell, but you saw the growth of uh, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. It's a big phenomena that occurred, a Bernie Sanders phenomena. I think these, uh, these are the beginnings, just the emerging sentiment that's going to take us uh, somewhere new, somewhere different. Yes, I think we all hope for somewhere new and somewhere different. Our guest has been Greg Goddles. I'm Kent Garrett, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.